You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. Hi, everyone. And this is Aaliyah. And today we are joined by Jacqueline Tucker. I have known her for all of five minutes, and I think she's amazing. I am so excited for you guys to get to know her as well. Like Katie and I, she is passionate about all things race and equity, but she is actually the first race and social equity officer for the city of Alexandria. So we are just excited to hear her story, learn a little bit about the work she does, and just how we can support the just amazing stuff that she's trying to do for this region. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Um, (laughs) So one, I'm excited to go in. You have a legal background and you are rooted clearly in racial equity issues. So how did you even end up in this space? What has been your journey into the city of Alexandria? So my journey to the city of Alexandria, um, originally uh, from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and both of my parents are from the South. Um, so my dad is from Mississippi um, and my mom is from Arkansas um, and both of my maternal and paternal grandparents migrated from the South in the Great Migration, which is one of the largest um, sort of human migrations in almost human history of Black people from the South to the North. My father's family moved from Mississippi because my grandmother was told that her son was going to be lynched. And so my grandmother had the foresight to get out for the safety of her family um, and kind of fleeing uh, the physical violence of racism um, in Mississippi in the 50s and the 60s. Um, And my mother's family uh, migrating from Arkansas, she had a large family, 10 brothers and sisters, and Um, That's a lot of mouths to feed. And so my grandfather worked in the General Motors plant um, in Detroit. Um, So both of my parents kind of had an opportunity to add upward mobility. Plus both of them uh, graduated from college. Um, Both of them have advanced degrees, but much because of the foresight uh, of my grandparents. Um, So it's always been instilled in me that you have to lift as you climb. Yeah. Um, and to really be involved in your community, uh, be socially responsible as a person, um, and to really look out for people who look like you. Um, and so I've always been very involved in my community. My father and my mother, very involved in our community um, in Grand Rapids. Um, and so I kind of took that with me um, in college, volunteered a lot, very heavy in the work of people of color, black people. Um, And then around the time where I was supposed to graduate, um, the economy crashed. Um, And it was like, what are you gonna do? Um, I always wanted to go to law school because um, in undergrad, I did have the opportunity to work on the Hill um, through the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Everybody who I encountered on the Hill uh, was a lawyer. Um, And so I just thought I had to be a lawyer if I wanted to work in policy and politics. And that is a lie. So anybody who's listening, you don't have to have a law degree to work in policy. Um, And uh, I taught sixth and seventh grade reading 
um, in Houston, Texas, third ward, and I taught in a school that didn't have a library. So how do you teach uh, reading? How do you teach kids the value and the importance of their education if they just don't have the fundamental resources? What like year books? was this? That I taught? Yeah. So you want me to tell you how old I am? Oh, give me a range. Give me like a 10-year range. (laughs) A 10-year range. Uh, So I'll say 2010 to 2000. Okay. That's crazy because people, I think, think that these issues are so long ago. And that is like recently. No. No, my mom works at a school in Pittsburgh where she said she's been writing letters to the school board because every year the kids get tested on science, but her kids don't have a science teacher. And she's like, how is it that the things that these kids are being held accountable for, there's not somebody to provide them with that education. And even Mm -hmm. if you bring in another teacher who's maybe studied some science, that's not the same as having somebody who's dedicated their career and is passionate about these issues and can explain something in a whole nother way than somebody else who's just reading and reciting it because it's a component of their job. Yeah, and that may be one of the reasons why we're having a tough time with science in our country right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have teachers dedicated. Um, but yeah, so I knew that wasn't my upbringing, but I knew that that was not unique to the students that I was teaching. It was pretty much universal, like uh, Aaliyah is saying. Um, and so I wanted to figure out what were the laws and policies, um, use the privileges that I do have, um, Use and think about a law degree and what are the laws and policies that are upholding um, this work um, and the inequities that we're seeing, not just in, in education, but in pretty much every institution, every sector in our country, we see that Black, Indigenous, people of color are doing much worse off. So why is that? Um, and we have to take a look at government because okay. gr- government creates the laws and policies. And so um, without going too deep into it, that is kind of how I dovetailed into policy, law, and government with the emphasis on wanting to improve the lives of Black, Indigenous, people of color, and to talk explicitly about race, because I think we might want to talk about poverty or people who are doing bad, and that's not, that's part of it, but that is not the root of it. The root of it is really racism, and if we really want to address the issues and problems, we have to name race explicitly. Mm-hmm. No, I will say when I saw your title, I love that because there are a lot of cities that are hiring chief equity officers, but you are the first in my knowledge where you explicitly call out race. And I'd love for you to tell us a bit about what you do, because I know I'm not sure. All I know is anytime I've said like, oh, we should have a conversation about race. People are like, do you know Jacqueline? You, you should you should call her. <laughs> and so I, I was like, she's solving everything, everything to do with race. So I would love for you to just tell us more. Like, what what is your charge? What is the work that you are doing? Yeah, so um, I think you're exactly right in terms of the title. And I, that's something that I really appreciate. Again, the foresight of the Alexandria Leadership Council. Also, Katie, who's significant, done a significant amount of getting uh, the city to this point. I think my primary goal, and I take my primary charge, is to be able to eliminate and reduce Uh, disparities experienced by people of color in Alexandria, but also people who are part of historically marginalized groups. Um, If we look at any indicator of life uh, in Alexandria, but really in any city, any rural area, any urban area, again, we'll see that people of color are doing worse off. In Alexandria specifically, um, I think the life expectancy difference 
uh, is a nine year difference based on what zip code you live in. Um, so just by virtue of where you grow up or where you live and by virtue of history and redlining and where people were designated or forced to live, we know who lives where in our city. Um, and that determines the outcomes that you'll have for your life. Um, it determines your uh, projected educational outcomes, your health outcomes and disparities if we look at COVID-19 um, and any other comorbidities, um, the median income that you have. I think for white people in Alexandria, it's close to 111,000 uh, for our blacks, uh, black people in uh, Alexandria, I think it's 58,000 and for Latinos, like 56,000. So half of the income, median income uh, average in Alexandria. So those are just some of the disparities that we could look at. We probably could go on and on. Uh, but I think my primary goal is to work towards eliminating those disparities. And when we're talking about disparities, we're talking about disproportionate uh, outcomes based on the population. Um, so um, I think my primary goal is to make people aware of that, uh, to build capacity within our city staff. Um, so we have close to 3,000 staff members and I'm would, would, making sure that they know about systemic and institutional racism and that they know that the policies and practices that they are operating in every day um, are impacting people's lives. Um, but also I think a significant part of the solutions around this are community engagement um, and really how do we center community um, to come up with the responses and the strategies that we need. It's not government's role to think that we have the answers because we don't. In large part, we've created the problem. So we really need to work directly with community to solve the, the, the problems and center community's voice and experience in our decision-making. So what does that really look like on <laughs> with your take? Because this is why we're called checkbox outreach is because mm -hmm. historically many jurisdictions do this checkbox like, hey, I talked to the Latinx community. Hey, I talked to the, the black <laughs> folks over here. So in your role, like what does that really look like? And then how do we how do we kind of measure the impact of that? I think we have to look at community engagement differently. Um, it's not just a public comment period. It's not just talking to groups uh, when you need something done. I think it's having true authentic relationships on an ongoing basis. And I also think it's giving groups the opportunity to design the process of how they wanna be engaged um, and giving them the tools and resources that they need to be active participants. So moving from um, just informing community about what you're doing to actual collaboration to shared decision making. Uh, what is it that you need and what does it look like and, and how can we support you in, in giving you the resources to do that? Um, I think that means showing up in different ways. I think that means showing up at different times. I think that means follow through and feedback, a constant feedback loop. Um, and I think it means compensating people for their time. Um, we can say like we want to engage with vulnerable populations, um, but they have lives too, right? I'm getting paid to come to you and right. to ask you questions about my job and just uh, expecting you to do that for free. I think people need to be compensated. I've always said that, time. like, I don't even like going to the meetings that I get paid for. Like, what would make you think <laughs> I want to go? Not all of them, but like, what would make you think some people will do it for free? I love that you just said that. Aaliyah, were you about to say yeah. something? No, I was just going to say, um, 
something I've been noticing recently. A lot of people who, I don't know, maybe friends of mine who I've asked before, like, oh, can you speak here? Can you speak there? And they're like, is there going to be an honorarium? And I was like, should I never, like, I never thought about that. Let me ask. And I feel like we're having this moment where people are like, no, my time is valuable. And I've been given a lot for free. I've been taking pennies here and there. I've been trying to help do favors and piece it together. But I'm giving you my time. I'm giving you my opinion and I'm giving you my perspective. And it mm -hmm. shouldn't always be assumed that I can do that on the times that you set or for nothing. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing I was curious about, Jacqueline, is if you could share an example, because I know Katie and I have tried to bring this up a couple of times on the show on like what it looks like to do this differently. And I don't know if people still are, are grasping that or have that image. Mm -hmm. So if there's a community you've worked with or if there's an example in the city, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I don't want to get the city wrong, but I think it was Portland. Oregon. I love Portland um, for everything <laughs> race. That's equity. happening now? Well, no, 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 no. But I mean, for their lead up to racial equity work. Like, I loved everything they were doing. And so um, they were, I'm not sure of the initiative, but they wanted to engage young people on the issue. I think maybe they were building a community center um, or something like that. And there was like a local like hangout spot that had like a ping pong table. Um, and kids would go in there and play ping pong and hang out in the area. Um, and so what they did is they set up, um, they, they brought in balls and then allowed the young people to write on the balls what their issues or concern were, concerns were. So it was kind of passive, but it was like, this is how we're engaging them and meeting them where they are. Um, and then we can come back and take that data and collect it in a different way. Um, and it's something that they can see, it's visual, it's, you know, artistic. But I think that even like thinking about that now, it, it is raising red flags for me because everybody doesn't have the ability to play, you know, ping pong, right? So we have these issues of accessibility when we start talking about how we're doing engagement and um, different ages and all of those kind of issues that kind of prohibit people from uh, participating. So we have to really think about both the creative and unique ways to engage people, but also um, the unintended consequences of not being able to, to reach everybody um, at all times in, in every way. And the unintended consequences of we collect and collect and collect data sometimes, mm. or and we don't do anything with it. And I've been super vocal in like town halls or just certain events where I'm like, how many of these things do we have to do across the nation where people are literally saying the same exact things that they've probably been mm -hmm. saying since before time and it's like where is the change like you can't just keep patting yourself on the back for saying hey we brought people here to talk where's the action where are the solutions and that's my biggest frustration in like that you just don't see that momentum I think absolutely it also goes to, like the value we put on certain types of data so we keep asking people their opinions because, you know, we think that's part of the process and the thing to do. But I don't know that we've reached a point where we consider that with the same weight and value as we do some of the, I don't know, like other data points or studies. And so we feel we need to keep doing more and more and more because that is the evidence-based piece. And then to that point, we have somebody then saying the same thing three times. We haven't done seven studies. So it just gets stuck. Yeah. Given your 
your title, right? And now everybody, even in the region, is like looking to you or even Carla Bruce in Fairfax County. Like you guys are supposed to solve all of these problems. How do we collectively, black women, how do we not get lost in this process of advocating for racial justice and racial equity? Like what, how, what is your take on that? How do we not get lost? Like how like do ourselves? Yeah, well, I guess that too. But like for me, I feel like I'm saying the same thing in every conversation. And so it's like, there's Katie, here she goes again, talking about racism, talking about racial equity. So like, how do we not get get caught up in that or get scooped or lumped into this bucket of, okay, she's a rabble rouser or she's here to, you know, stir the pot. Like, how do we as individuals, as black women, better show up in this space while still advocating for these issues? I don't know, because I, I need the cheat code. That's why I'm asking. I don't have the cheat code. <laughs> I will say, um, one, is not the responsibility of Black people, people of color, to educate white people or other people on the issue of race. It's not our responsibility. Um, I was reading Audre Lorde, like, it's not the oppressed. It's a form of oppression for the oppressed to have to educate the oppressor on the oppression or the, the experience, that experience, right? So one, it's not our responsibility. Um, but in contrast to that, we are uniquely positioned as black women um, to free us all, so to say, right? We are the most disrespected population mm-hmm. um, in our country, right? And so we have that unique perspective and experience to say, if Black women are free, then everybody is free. Or if the Black trans woman is free, then everybody is free, right? If the Black trans disabled person is free, we're all free because that is how society has marginalized us to the depths of not being a part of society, right? So I, I don't know how we can choose to take the responsibility to educate others, but it is not our responsibility. Um, our only responsibility is to, for lack of a better phrase, stay black and die. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I knew what was coming. I was like, as you were getting ready to say it, I was just like, I know it. yeah, which is a whole nother issue. What was going through my head though, as you were talking is that I think sometimes in this work, people, don't account for the multiple multiple identities that we all bring to this. Like none of us are just black. Like you may be a black woman or like you said, a black trans woman or black and disabled or you have a certain income or a particular geography. And there's so many layers to this that if you're going to be serious about this work, I don't think people realize like it's not enough to just learn definitions. It's not enough to, you know, okay, I know the term equity. I know race, I know racism, and I can tell you the difference, but it is really a deep and uncomfortable conversation to get layer to layer to layer to that and how the systems of oppression are so intertwined and treat you worse the more layers of them you have. Yeah. And I think that's why intersectionality is so important. We have to understand, you know, race, class, gender, ability, sexual orientation, sexual identity. Uh, We have to be able to understand and have an analysis for all of those and how they intersect with each other. Again, if we're truly all going to be free, right? It's not enough for us to have LGBTQ rights 
um, when LGBTQ people of color are still struggling and are the most unhoused of all of our society. Um, some, some of them may have rights, uh, but not all of them. So we need to think really uh, critically about our intersectional, uh, intersectional analysis um, when, when talking about this work. So when we see like jurisdictions like city of Alexandria taking a charge to do this type of work, the, the local government, yes, we know created the problem, but the funding, the financing is not there. What does support look like from the private sector or from corporations? Now we're seeing all these Black Lives Matter graphics and mission statements or whatever it might be. But what does it really, really look like? Like, where is their power? Where is their influence? And where is their dollar most needed to make a change in the short term and in the long term? I think in the short term and the long term, the, if we're talking about money, it needs to go to people. Uh, we maybe need to talk about reparations. Uh, we may need to talk about universal basic income, right? What we have now are a lot of kind of services and band-aids because we don't want to give money to people um, for whatever reason that is, right? And so the money needs to go to the people. And we can think of creative ways to do that, but essentially me creating a program and creating another institution or a system by which I'm funneling the money through is not necessarily helping. Um, it's really a Band-Aid. And so I think getting to the root cause of what the issues are, systemic racism, why systemic racism uh, exists, thinking, taking a hard look at capitalism, because that is also a part of this mm-hmm. uh, conversation that we don't want to talk about. Um, but it's important because um, racism and slavery in this country were based on free labor. Yep. Um, and that is capitalism, um, the exploitation of labor. And so we have to also have that conversation as well. So I think if you're talking about money, give the money to the people. Yeah. And that ties into exactly <laughs> what we've talked about a lot on some recent episodes in, in terms of community development and saying, yes, you have the developers coming in. Yes, you have these organizations or whatever that come in. But what is that workforce development pipelining really look like when you come in are you really creating opportunities for people who live in that community to sit in your c-suite like that to me is the take and the the take to me is that we have to we play the game by generating wealth because we're playing by a different set of rules in this capitalistic society so we need to enter the arena and play by the same rules and like come for people's necks with money, I mean, collectively. And that's my whole jam right now. I'm like, let's just do it. Let's just go. I'm ready to rock because I can't sit. I can only sit on so many boards or commissions for two hours, three hours of my time and nothing happens. It To me, my impact is more or is it of a better use in trying to generate capital to like put people on. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't get me started. I get hyped. <laughs> So how um, do we, how do we support you? Like how with the work that you're doing and, and you can't fix the issue like Aaliyah brought up, everybody says call Jacqueline. So what does support look like for you or this role? Not you individually, I guess. And you, whatever. But I do think, I mean, if you, if you feel comfortable and want to go and talk about you, I think that's something we should make space for because it is hard being in this work. 
it is hard being a black woman in America. And I think, you know, having space to just say, what does it look like for you to protect your peace? What does it look like for you to do self-care or to be supported? And how can we as sisters in this fight be there with you? All of that um, <laughs> is, is critically important. Um, and I also, and this may be the black woman in me, I have a hard time asking for help. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so many people in the community and within the city have asked, how can they help? And at this point, I think one is just, I'm too new into my work and we're still building out what we're gonna be um, doing. Um, so I can't really say um, what I need in terms of support, but the support is there. Um, what I would like to see in the Alexandria community is a multiracial coalition. Um, there are lots of groups who are interested and in working on racially explicit work um, in Alexandria, both in the community or attached to organizations, um, but they are not unified. Um, so I would like to see a coalition emerge. Um, hopefully, I'm planting the seeds every time I have a conversation, but I think that would be beneficial to everybody and that would make the collective efforts um, and awareness around the issues of racial disparities in our city. Um, <laughs> it, it, would, it would just it would hold the, it would give an opportunity to have advocacy and hold city government accountable. Um, so it's something that I would like to be a part of, but it's not something that I would want to lead. Like, I think that there needs to be a, a true community effort um, to move this forward. In terms of being a black woman, um, nobody has supported me as much as black women. Um, that's both in the city and outside of the city. And I think uh, Black women have a, a unique superpower to really hold space and hold, you know, one other Black women, but Black people in general. Um, so I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to have this platform um, and the work that you're doing, but also to like feel supported um, and encouraged um, by 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 this work. So if you all want to do yoga or meditate <laughs> and just do like I literally beg my friends on the weekends like y'all want to do yoga on Zoom because um, it, it makes it makes all the difference to just move. And I think movement in its in and of itself is a significant significant part of Black culture, um, but it's also a part of healing. Um, so that's one thing. And I also think that rest is a significant part of what we don't give ourselves. Um, and so if you follow the NAP ministry on Twitter or Instagram, NAP ministry, um, it really is talking about the ability to rest as a way to fight um, and resist, um, fight white supremacy and resist um, kind of this assault that we've been under yeah. for the entirety of our lives. Well, it goes right? to that saying too of, I forget who said it, maybe a philosopher or something, but basically you have to be calm and peaceful in your home life so you can be rowdy and rambunctious out in the world. Like you mm-hmm. can't, you can't fight this fight. You can't go up against what we're going up against every day if you're not at peace. 
whatever mm-hmm. that might look like, your own individual piece. So I'm really glad you said that. And I'll do yoga. I was going to say, I'm all up for the Zoom yoga. Yeah. Um, okay. And I then mommy and me yogas back when, when I like, I don't know, back when I was more active before I had to go back to work after maternity leave, <laughs> but I'm ready to restart. And then when we can go back outside and do stuff, I'm all about mm-hmm. hot yoga. Like I will totally do some hot yoga any day of the week. Yes. I'm also when the world opens back up. Um, <laughs> I know we talked about this before we started recording, but I'm all about these fancy dinners. So yeah, come hungry in the next year and a half. Yeah. But fancy dinners more. We'll, we'll give the teaser like with us three, we'll invite and welcome the other, the broader community to join. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We should actually do a pre, we should do a wait list. I think for these dinners. Um, I'm okay with that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's create, create the demand. The man is going to be so high. I know. I feel it. I feel it in my spirit. Well, this has been amazing. I am so glad. And I think this is perfect. This will actually be our last episode that we air for the first season of Checkbox Outreach. And I think you've tied together a lot of what we have been communicating in all of our episodes up until this point and your energy and what you bring and just your vision and the work that you're doing is so powerful and so important. And so I'm really glad to have this season finale of with a guest like you. Um, how can people connect with you or get in touch with you outside of what we post um, on our website? <laughs> so you can follow me on Twitter at equity ESQ, like Esquire. Um, and you can reach me on the city's website. So we also have a webpage for the equity work. It's alexandriava.gov forward slash equity. And I think my contact information is on there. So you can find it there. And I just want to congratulate both of you for a successful first season of your uh, podcast. Um, It's not easy, but you are committed to this work. And um, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun and I'm so lame. I just I just found you and now we're friends. <laughs> That's I real need a time. blue check mark. I need a blue check mark. Oh, okay. Well, I don't, we can I don't really be that. saying anything. I just retweet people. I have listen, I only have like a hundred, maybe I don't even know how many followers I have. It's not that many on Twitter. But Corey Booker and Michael Tubbs follow me on Twitter. Oh. And I'm just saying, like, I think that's all I need. So I've made it, guys. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Michelle Obama, follow me if you're listening. Oh, I no, thought you said she is. Oh, I was about to. I, I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Excuse me. If she's listening, if she's listening to our podcast, <laughs> I would not be sitting here. Right now. <laughs> we speak it to her existence. My life no, speak it. She's on my vision board. Her and Oprah. So let's, Alita, Alia. What do you have to speak into existence about Michelle Obama? Let's do it. Um, we'll be working together. Very she can easy. be our. We can do a dinner with her. Yeah. Mid- Easy. I feel like if we're doing a dinner with her, then I'm not selling seats. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just keeping it. Three of us and Michelle. Okay. <laughs> Aww. That's, that's probably not right on a podcast about inclusivity, but I just, I have so many <laughs> questions I have to ask about her. Yeah. I'm not mad. Next dinner. I'm not mad. I'm, I'm appreciative of you asking for what you want. I'm so proud. Look at that. Look at, we've come full circle. She's demanding yeah. it, guys. All right. This has been great. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you both. Take care. 
it's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? All right, Aaliyah, I love that conversation for many reasons. I'm super proud of the role of the race and social equity officer for the city of Alexandria, but just really proud of Jacqueline in one stepping into the position pretty much in the middle of or in the beginning of a pandemic and two, making it her own, but three, exactly what she said on this call and that she's going to give her lived experiences to make the role powerful and meaningful and bring about that true community change that we've been talking about. Yeah, I loved meeting her. And I think you already saw that power when she talked about the title that she has. I think there are, what, 10, 12 cities across the country that have chief equity officers, which is important. But I think when she talked about being intentional and explicit about having race in her title and talking about racial equity, I think to me that's a huge power move, which showcases that even when we look at other forms of bias and discrimination, oftentimes when we disaggregate the data by race, the issues are even deeper and the disparities that we have to overcome are much greater. And so I appreciate her calling out from the very beginning, what's the work that she's here to do? Yeah, for sure. I guess my other takeaway is I I, I joked about this on the episode, but literally every time I have heard a conversation about equity or about race in the city, somebody recently has said to me, do you know Jacqueline? And so I was super excited to meet her. But at the same time, I've been thinking to myself, one person can't do this work alone. And so I was struck by at the end when she talked about partnerships and she talked about coalitions, because if we are to become a more equitable city, then it's Jacqueline plus. It's each of us stepping back and as we've talked about on the show, checking our bias, understanding and asking questions about what are we doing to be anti-racist? What are we doing to change the systems that perpetuate inequities? And really not just saying, okay, well, let me go call someone else. Let me figure out how I do the self-work to be a good partner in doing the group work to actually make our city a place that is equitable. Yeah, I think it's completely an and and conversation. And groups, when they're engaging Jacqueline, should say, what are your goals? How can we lift those up rather than come in, fix, do, come give your talk, and then we're going to just sit here and take it in and then do business as usual the next day. And so that type of support is powerful. And to bring your network, bring your capital if you have it, bring your your passion, whatever it is you have to bring, bring it to uplift the work as a whole. And let's just for real, for real work together and make, make this happen. Yes. And just to echo something she said, because literally after I finished, I went and followed the nap ministry on Twitter <laughs> and my life has never been the same. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think one of the most important, I felt one of the most important parts of the episode was just talking about that self care and this work can feel lonely it can feel like you're because you're you feel like so repetitive right I feel like I've been saying the same thing since 2009 and so it's tiring and it's draining and especially when you're in a position like Jacqueline when everybody's pointing to you and saying hey now you fix it like that has it can only start to you know get at you or or drain you or wear you down and so the self-care piece is so important and I think Bernadette talked about that in a different episode as well. And just taking that time and reflecting and resetting and doing what you need to do for you so you can show up as a better person is a power move in in and of itself. Yeah. One of the things I've been learning 
a lot in the past month is about what self-care looks like for me. I'm be honest, initially I thought that meant a face mask, a bubble bath, lots of candles, and don't get me wrong, I had many a wonderful night um, when <laughs> Zeke would let me have those moments. But I also have been trying to push myself that self-care needs to also look like a space where I have the chance to process some of these emotions I'm feeling because it does get tiring and it does get exhausting. And so my church actually has a small group um, and it was meeting for eight weeks and it was called Black Women's Space. And I have just met like 12 of the most amazing black women across the DMV. And we come and have conversations about trauma, trauma in our family, trauma going all the way back to slavery and before and like tracing your history. We talk about being exhausted and what it means to be tired as a black woman. And who do you share that with? We talk about what it means to heal and what a healing spaces look like. We do breathing exercises, which... Honestly, weeks one and two, I thought were the most awkward things I've ever done. I was super uncomfortable. I couldn't even like breathe out loud. But it has been something for me to really realize that self-care needs to include that episode, that that element as well. Uh, I'm journaling, which is something I've never done. Hey. And so I don't know. I would just encourage people to explore that further. What does it look like to restore and replenish yourself? Because this is a long fight ahead of us. And again, my ask to our audience, to whether that's elected officials, community groups, whatever, is support that in other people. And when people say they don't have the bandwidth, accept that. When people say they can't attend a meeting or that they're, they're maxed out, accept that. Give them their space. Let them recharge. And then again, come to the conversation. How do I empower you? What do I have to give? Is it my network? Is it capital? Is whatever, right? The, this is how I think we really need to collaborate and how we really need to build coalitions and build community instead of saying, I want to come to the table. I want to talk. I want to raise my flag about my point and why it's important to me. And then I'm going to go back over into my silo and, and we're going to come back and meet again next month. That we have to change the game. We have to change the game. I mean, that's the difference between honestly saying you want to change the game and actually changing it. If you're just there it's talking about it, then fine, keep taking up space. You we'll keep that chair over there. But if you're really there to do something different, then that is gonna require you to be honest about what you can give and what you can't give. But it also requires like you to have some ideas and do some work in between. Everything's not gonna happen in these meetings. Everything's not gonna happen in a town hall or another conversation. Wait, it doesn't? Like, what? Action. No, I just <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> I, you know, as many I have seen an upsurge in these conversations <laughs> happening. You would think that by having the conversation, that is going to be the way that we transform. I can't, yeah. America, and that's one piece. But I'm hoping that our listeners have been following our journey and the conversations we've had with so many dope, amazing people, and that they're finally not finally, but that they're seeing specific actions that they can take and contribute to. Yeah, so that is a perfect segue because we are closing out our first season. We have our finale episode next week, and I'm just, I'm proud of us. Like, I am so ridiculously proud of us and proud of what Checkbox Outreach has been. So I just encourage people to stay tuned for that episode and have some of our takeaway thoughts and takeaway action steps, and then catch us on the flip side for season two. Yes, I'm going to try not to get emotional over here next week. <laughs> It's okay. I support you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on iTunes, on Spotify, as well as our website. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.